0: Hello and welcome to M&A on Trial, which is a podcast about those bits of M&A deals which, dare I say it, go wrong.
1: Each week we'll be discussing what happens in real life when those words negotiated late into the night end up in dispute.
0: We are your hosts, Harriet Martin, Senior Associate at Clifford Chance specialising in M&A.
1: And Sachin Tricker, I'm a partner at Clifford Chance specialising in arbitration and post-M&A disputes.
0: We're going to keep it simple, have some fun, and hopefully give a fresh perspective for those of you, legal or business side, doing English law M&A deals across the globe. So, Sachin, this is our inaugural podcast, and we have called it, When Does All the Chatter Matter?
1: Well, what sort of chatter are we talking about?
0: Well, I think what we're talking about is, if you're in a doing an M&A deal, there's all sorts of talk beforehand. You have your management presentations. You, have, you might have an auction process, lots and lots of statements about the business. Then you sign your SPA, and then afterwards, all sorts of conversations happening about actually putting into practice what it says in the SPA. So I really want to drill down into which of those statements matter and which ones we can worry yeah, it's a It's a pre-contract. Less.
1: Um, quite, quite a lot of risk there, uh, I, I, I would say. Um, uh, and from what we see in, in the dispute sphere... Uh, the risks really arise when you're looking at um, statements and representations that were made in that pre-contractual phase, um, and in particular, if if those uh, representations that are made are false statements of facts, then uh, the risk is even even greater. Um, but I'm sure that you you look to address those in your SPAs. Yeah. Uh, how do you go about doing that?
0: Yeah. So I suppose what we're really talking about is. So take an auction process, you have um, maybe management presentations, people talking about the business um, and really how that translates into an SPA is the target, you'll have warranties given by the seller in respect of the target company that is being sold Um, and within that we tend to only try to have statements that are not forward looking. So just statements about the business um, as it is at the time that the um, SPA is signed. And then in terms of all of the other stuff that goes on, all of the other chatter, we deal with that really in a um, what we call an entire agreement clause. You obviously know about that. Um, But really, that says uh, that the only statements that the parties are going to rely on are the ones that are actually in the contract. And the idea of that being clearly to exclude Anything else that has been said about the business?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those those entire agreement clauses and, and non-reliance clauses are really powerful, really important um, clauses. They 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 are effective in, in making sure that any of that pre-contractual chatter, so far as representations are concerned, essentially can put that to one side. Mm. Because what really matters then for the purposes of, let's say, a potential misrepresentation claim is truly what is recorded in the four corners of the contract as, suppose, as representation, and
0: that's obviously really helpful for the seller. But from the perspective of the buyer, I think that that means that if there has been anything that's been said in that pre-contractual chatter, if it's important to you as a buyer, you've got to get it into your warranties, right? Hundred
1: percent, hundred percent. You've got to make sure you get it into your uh, into your contract as a as a warranty or representation.
0: And I suppose the business people working on the business sides of things, you know, this isn't just a legal thing. If you're working in the business. Probably, <laughs> maybe we say this all the time. Gotta read the warranties,
1: got, got to read those carefully, um, and make sure that you're comfortable with them. And, and look, of course, I mean, it goes without saying, even if you have um, that contractual protection, it's it's you know usually good practice to make sure that you don't make false statements of fact, state the mm. obvious, um, uh, pre contractually. Because, uh, you know, one risk that's very difficult to, to mitigate, of course, is if uh, that statement has been made fraudulently, mm. right? and Um, Could you
0: tell us, you know, it probably sounds obvious, but what exactly I suppose legally does it mean for a statement to be made fraudulently as opposed to by accident?
1: uh, I mean, there's probably three limbs to it. Um, The first is if you make uh, a statement uh, knowing it to be false, Mm -hmm. um, or you make the statement um, without a genuine and honest belief as to its truth. Um, And then thirdly, if you make that statement recklessly um, as to whether whether it's true or not, uh, and if you if, if if you do one of those, then there's a there's a potential risk that the statement or the representation that you've made is fraudulent, and then your entire agreement clause, your non reliance clause, may not be effective in um, in eliminating liability pre contractually because it's very difficult to exclude liability for for your own fraud. Yeah. So um, look, good practice just to make sure that whatever statement you're making is true, uh, and of course we, we we've got to make sure that there's no fraud.
0: And I suppose it's worth pointing out that not only does it mean that your entire agreement clause doesn't work, but it also means that all of your other liability caps, so obviously a huge seller protection in any SPA is your caps on warranty claims, your overall caps on all claims under the agreement, all of that sort of thing, that effectively gets disapplied in the case of
1: fraud. That, that's what we usually see. Yeah, I mean, your, your limitations of liability and your caps on liability will typically only um, apply... Um, in certain circumstances, of course, if there's fraud, then then that will usually, um, uh, given the terms of the contract, effectively supply those limitations of liabilities and those caps. So,
0: and as a buyer, no fraud. You don't want to. So this is, you know, from a seller's perspective, but from a buyer's perspective, you don't want to be in a position where you're trying to rely on a fraud claim, do you?
1: Right. I mean, this this is the thing. I mean, what you see in in a dispute setting is. Um, that sometimes people will raise these arguments of fraud, you know, fraudulent misrepresentation. Um, sometimes they feel it very strongly. but very difficult to prove, but they feel it very strongly. And, and one of the reasons why they do that is because they want to get around those pretty tightly defined limitation of liability provisions and those caps on liability. And, and, a, and a, an act of fraud might well be uh, something that, they, that, that, that will do that.
0: So, another risk that we see, I think, in this area section is the process of disclosure. So, those listening to this podcast will probably be aware that on the sell side, you go through a process of reading all your warranties, discussing with your your business leads and, and and others in the in the target company the ways in which this warranty might be untrue. And clearly, that deep dive does sometimes elicit information that maybe you didn't particularly want to find, and things that could impact on. The price of the uh, the price that your your buyer is offering you, so clearly on the sell side, sometimes we see, you know, understanding, understandably, a reluctance to actually disclose that information because, yeah, as it says, you might your buyer might reduce the price. What would you say the sort of the right approach would be in that situation?
1: I mean, there there are risks there. I mean, if you if 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 you think that or well, you feel the warranty is untrue because of a particular. Um, fact but so say there's no
0: litigation and you right. find some litigation <laughs>
1: and, and, you, and you don't disclose that fact um, because you're worried about the price then you know there are red flags there um, and I can see a potential argument of fraud uh, in there if you deliberately withhold that sort of information so look I would say best practice is disclose it right and and it is what it is so far as the price is concerned but um, best not to conceal a material fact like that. Agree. But I mean, the other thing that we see in the sort of pre-contractual period, and um, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this to open the windows to what's going on before the execution of the contract in terms of the drafts that that are being circulated. Um, when I was spending my time in the corporate department as a trainee many years ago, I seem to remember drafts being circulated all the time. That's still still the still the process. Lots of drafts flying around.
0: Yes, yes, no, absolutely, um, and clearly positions change in drafts all the time and i imagine from um you know a buyer and a seller perspective there must be some concern that you're somehow pinning your colors to the mast if you send a draft over to the other side you actually put put something on the table and you know are you going to be held to that how does that how does that actually reflect on um interpreting the contract as signed
1: um i mean a short answer is the drafts have no bearing really on on the interpretation of the final words deployed by by the parties in a contract i mean drafts may have some collateral purpose if you're looking for some form of common mistake or rectification of the contract but but as an aid to interpretation um actually no they they don't have uh, a bearing under english law um and candidly that that can be quite surprising to clients i think um you know they look at you know when when when, when a dispute arises um Sometimes the first instinct of client is to look back at the drafts and see, right, how did this play out? Does it shed any light on uh, on the words finally deployed? Um, but as I say, strictly speaking, it doesn't actually have a bearing, um, and that's because drafts are pretty unreliable as as a guide to interpretation. Um, I mean, to give you one example, I had a situation relatively recently where there was a disagreement between uh, our client and and its contractual counterparty as to whether our client was was obliged to do a certain thing and our client showed us some of the drafts of 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 the the relevant document of the relevant contract and in the drafts that particular obligation had been struck out and our client was saying well look you know look that obligation had had gone so of course we weren't obliged to do it and that's the end of the matter um but actually you know that those drafts are not an aid to what the parties finally agreed in their contract You know, there may be various reasons as to why those words were struck out one of which was because um you know the obligation was otherwise captured in the contractual provision so so look as an aid hmm. to interpretation no maybe that's of of some comfort to i think to it's some clients, comfort if you know
0: it if you sort of know it going into your m&a process which is part of what this podcast is all about you know it is some comfort to know that you have some freedom in the, in the drafts. So you don't need to be too worried about them. But again, as we said, that final contract, the one that you signed, that's the one that you really have to read carefully. Um, should we move on to talking about conversations that happen, the chatter after you've signed your SPA? So if I may set the scene. So say we have a payment obligation in the contract, which is payment in seven days payment of some sum in seven days after the spa is signed maybe somebody you know actually on the ground in the weeds of actually implementing this contract says to somebody on the other side um don't worry about it payment is okay in two weeks how is that relevant to interpreting what the actual obligation is in the contract
1: do you know what you'll be surprised how often this sort of thing comes up actually um these post-contractual statements um and you know again candidly as an aid to interpretation of the contract it has no bearing you know the contract has a has an objective meaning on the date on which it was signed and that meaning does not change over time so you know to take that example if the contract said payment within 7 days it's payment within 7 days right i mean if someone says later oh no no what we meant was 10 days or 12 days or 2 weeks it doesn't actually change the meaning of the contract like it might have some other effects, um, perhaps by way of a variation to the contract but you know perhaps I would expect that some of the contracts would have um, clauses in them to make sure that you can't vary a contract orally.
0: yeah no it's complete standard market practice to mm. um, have a variation only in writing clause and again as a you know, if there is an intentional change to the contract post signing. Clearly, we would always, you know, insist that that would be in writing as right. well.
1: I mean, it, it it could give rise to some sort of a de- defence and estoppel, um, but perhaps that's going into some technicalities that we we won't, we won't cover in terms of chat just now. But it can have a collateral purpose. That's what I'll say. But it, it shouldn't have any effect on on contractual interpretation.
0: Understood. So I think maybe we should try and wrap it up there and draw out some key takeaways. Um, I think pre-contract what I'm really taking from this is be careful not to overinflate the state of the company or maybe the competitiveness of the auction but in practice we do understand that that is can be difficult um, and your contract your SPA should have an entire agreement clause however the big kind of thing to remember there is be very careful about making false statements knowingly making false statements of fact just in case you open the door to fraudulent miswrap i'm also hearing that drafts generally not an aid to contractual interpretation so go into your deals knowing that make think to make sure that anything you need is actually in the signed contract
1: yep and in terms of the post-contractual chatter um, generally speaking not an aid to contractual interpretation but nevertheless be careful as to whether it might amount to a variation. Typically, you'll have a no variation unless in writing clause, I'd imagine. Um, but again, the post-contractual chatter may have some relevance in, in estoppel.
0: And should we comment a little bit on the centrality of the, the contract, how the courts philosophically see see that?
1: Cannot be emphasised enough. I mean, when it comes to uh, contract interpretation, the contract rules. So um, make sure your contract is as clear as is humanly possible make sure all your obligations and rights that you find important are, are covered in that contract because the contract rules.
0: Great conversation. Thank you very much, Sachin. Thank you. Our next episode is called What's the Damage? What can you actually claim in terms of your loss and what happens when money isn't enough? Thanks again. We'll see you soon.